Welcome to the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast, the show that brings you lively conversations with leaders, colleagues, and friends in healthcare, pharmacy, and beyond. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast. I'm Melissa Muir Corrigan, and I'll be your host. This is episode 30 of the Melissa Rx Scripps podcast, and thanks for listening. We're recording this episode during Women's History Month. I'm so grateful to celebrate the amazing healthcare leaders, women in science, women in pharmacy, who have changed the world. Also, please join me in gratitude for the frontline healthcare workers, pharmacists, student pharmacists, and pharmacy technicians, and other people showing up, making a difference, and working tirelessly every day during the pandemic. Thank you. Well, now on today's podcast, I'll be talking with Candace Webb. Candace and I are going to be discussing many things, including her leadership experiences and work on multidisciplinary solutions to improve patient care. I'll give you a bit of an introduction to Candace and then also let her tell you about herself, her career, and her many varied experiences in life in general. Well, in 2020, Candace Webb returned to public service. And I look forward to learning more about that one. Most recently, Candace served as a senior program officer and director with the National Academy of Medicine's NAM Action Collaborative on Clinician Wellbeing and Resilience, a network of over 200 organizations committed to reversing trends in clinician burnout, which launched in 2017. Boy, this is such an important topic now more than ever. Candace is passionate about public health addressing health disparities, especially for vulnerable populations such as women and youth, and being a social justice advocate. Well, Candace, thank you for being here with me today. Before we get into your career experiences, maybe you can talk a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and about your family. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on with you, Melissa. Well, I grew up in Florida in the Tampa Bay area to be exact. Um, after I graduated high school, I entered college. I'm thinking I wanted to become a physician, which was the career I always dreamt about um, throughout my childhood and teen years. So I started off as a biochemistry major actually on the um, pre-med track at the University of Florida, go Gators. During my um, first semester of college, though my mother passed away suddenly um, at the young age of 43 um, from complications due to a compromised immune system um, and from a preventable infection. Um, I was 18 at the time and was immediately catapulted into navigating our nation's patchwork healthcare system. Wow. And it was due to this healthcare experience that I was first exposed to the inner workings of our healthcare system, really operating more like a sick care system. I learned quickly just how complicated it is to find um, access and afford quality health care that's patient-centered and family-centered here in the U.S., but especially in the South. I also became, at that time, um, sensitized for the first time, again, to the reality of health disparities, what that concept even was. It, before then, I was completely, fortunately, kind of sheltered from that reality and and the injustices in the very design of our own U.S. healthcare system. Um, and then I started to ask myself a whole lot of questions, like why are African-American families disproportionately affected by HIV and fare worse than others, especially when we have highly effective life-extending treatment available, right? 
why do African American women and men have shorter life expectancies than our American part, you know, counterparts? Like, why do African American women, even though we might have higher education and might not be living in poverty, we're still at higher risk of maternal death, um, even when we have the means to get prenatal and postpartum care. So the questions just started to mount for me because <laughs> I was in college and you're primed to ask questions, right? right? That's the time where you're you're queued up to start examining everything you knew and what's around you. So I became inquisitive and I started to um, slowly but surely become more aware of the, the ethical and legal and social and cultural and historical and political um, forces, everything that you learn in a good liberal arts program, right? Um, that shapes our health, our individual health behaviors, like as well as our, our attitudes and our perceptions of what it means to be healthy and what it means to be sick. Our, and that also shape our, how we interact with our healthcare providers and, this, and the healthcare systems that they work in, right? So started to ask a lot of questions because it was really sudden for me. And I was already on the pre-med track. And um, so I started off with the clinical focus, really thinking I wanted to go into medicine and be a care for one-on-one patients, right? But then I got really, I got the, the bug for activism and really started to get involved in local community-based health activism, really to kind of sort out what happened to my family. Like, you know, our, my family was upended because my mother was really like the matriarch of our family in that way. And so I started to stumble upon different opportunities to engage in health advocacy, you know, at the local level, but then those opportunities led to more, um, state and national and even global level act HIV and youth and women's health activism. And um, I was selected to serve on the Young Women of Color Leadership Council, which is a project of the national organization Advocates for Youth. And that um, council supports a national network of young women of color from the ages of 14 to 24 to advocate for the inclusion of other young women of color in the planning implementation and evaluation of sexual health and reproductive justice programs and policies in their in their backyard. So um, that really exposed me to advocacy and how I could use my voice, my lived experience to improve my own health care, but the health care of others like me. And so I professionalized my my personal family experiences. I started to see people with the three letters NPH, Masters of Public Health behind their names, doing the work that I was also passionate about. So I was like, I want to go to public health graduate school. So so yes, I professionalized my personal and family experiences, um, confronting health inequities and the impact stigma has on um, shaping whether people show up for care or not and our outcomes, right? So um, I decided to pursue graduate studies at the University of South Florida um, in my hometown, Tampa, and focused on maternal and child health, um, sexual and reproductive health and justice issues, and infectious disease prevention and control. Um, that was when I decided I wanted to shift my career focus from clinical, from a one patient at a time focus, to culture and systems change and wanting to focus on the community as my patient. Wow. Well, I appreciate your vulnerability and also you sharing that story about what happened with your mom and, you know, how that impacted you at such a young age and then that you were able to take that, you know, to a larger scale. And I think for our listeners out there, it's often something that they see or they're exposed to. And, 
you know, you probably thought I'm going to stay in the pre-med path. You know, I'm that's, that's like <laughs> when you went into um, school at Florida and all of that, but you know, I, I think it's helpful to just realize that sometimes things come in front of us and then our eyes are opened and we realize, you know, let's take a pivot and that that's the way to go. And the impact that you can have is even greater, you know, and your, and your own personal experience, you had lived it versus just reading about something in a book or hearing a lecture about it for sure. Right. Absolutely. The queen of the pivot here. Yep. (laughs) Well, you know, you touched on, we touched on grief and loss in this past year, um, year plus, there's really been so much loss and grief related to, you know, COVID-19 and there's been loss of milestone events and inability to gather for the holidays. So what's that felt like for you and how have you connected with others? And what are some of the things that you've done to kind of take care of yourself during this time? I agree wholeheartedly, Melissa. Um, There has been so much loss and grief this past year um, in all aspects of what it means to be um, human and living in community. And yeah, in my own family, you know, I had extended family members who suffered from COVID-19 illness and recovered, fortunately. Um, I had a family member who passed away, not due to COVID-19 illness, but because we were in the pandemic, it was in the height of the summer last year, 2020, uh, we weren't able to gather and travel to all be together to grieve like we would normally, ha- you know, would have. And, you know, I had to kind of be the administrative, I'm more administrative oriented in my family. So I had to kind of coordinate with the funeral home to even provide virtual memorial services for us. So, cause our family's across the country. So we could at least mourn virtually, right? Yeah. right? And um, kind of mark that, mark that point. So yeah, so, and then like you said, loss of other mile, you know, milestone events, uh, not being able to gather to celebrate high school and college graduations in my family or to um, set, you know, college yep. send-offs, <laughs> connecting for the holidays, you know, like the, the lost resources when you, you know, I had a, a, my um, sister, my very own sister, you know, invested money to um, fly her family up here, to, you know, to spend the holidays with me. And we were really excited about my niece coming up to DC for the first time. And, you know, you know she lost money, three flights. That's a lot of money for a lot of people uh, because, you know, she was unable to um, get it refunded, right? So her tickets were not refundable. So those are real things that people had to experience in my own family. So um, fortunately, I am, I was always very tech savvy and a lot of my family and close friends live in other states from where I live. I live in Washington, D.C. So even before the pandemic, I was already kind of accustomed and conditioned to staying connected with people I, I love and care about via Zoom and just the social channels and just regular old phone calls, yes. right? Um, the, the regular old phone calls, it's not lost on me. I love them and it's it's still a lifeline for me. So just relied on that extra, you know, just with more people than normal um, or typical times, right? So um, Google Meet and Zoom and I did Zoom Zumba for the first time and that was fun. And so that's been um, really important for me is to just make sure I stay connected and be more intentional about scheduling, you know, several of my, I have different threads of friends, right? right? So different threads of my friends, we, we actually had scheduled on our calendars, had 12 o'clock Saturday check-ins for one group of friends every Saturday for like the good part of last year. Um, and other, and other threads of my friends, we had similar, you know, we'd have on like Tuesday, 
you know, Tuesday happy hour, like virtual happy hour schedule, yeah. you know, routinely. And then I realized as the year progressed last year, I needed a germ pod, a pandemic germ pod, yeah. you know, like people who I needed that interaction with somebody. The virtual got old <laughs> and I still do the virtual, but I needed, I needed something else too to, for my own well-being. So I added someone into my germ pod and that made all the difference. And then also one, one of the things about living in Washington, D.C., and all that happened last year um, that came to a head with the racial, you know, the racial justice reckoning in our country, the protests downtown, and um, everything has happened since then, right? In D.C., it's, you know, my beloved adopted city has changed, you know, and I'm, I used to love being able to just walk freely and go down to the National Mall, go to the Smithsonian Museums. And this time of the year coming into spring, you know, with the tidal base and the cherry blossom season. And, um, you know, DC just has so much um, culture and um, uh, to just experience and, and great museums. And it's, you know, it's sad not being able to experience those things, but um, the, there's a lot of outdoor big spaces. So you can distance, you know, physically distance yourself from people. So, you know, I was able to do that a bit last year as well, which really made all the difference, you know, went down to Mount Vernon and was able to kind of distance and walk out in nature, Great Falls, just so taking advantage of the outdoor distancing to again, stay kind of not cooped up in my own place and still be out and enjoy the, the region for all that it has without, you know, having to interface with people in large crowds for sure. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I appreciate what you mentioned about being intentional. And I, like you, I've had these recurring Zoom or connections, and then there's a text chain of my college mm-hmm. girlfriends. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think before when we had so many plans and so many things mm-hmm. going on and trips and, and all that kind of thing, we didn't necessarily have time for it. So I think, I guess that's one thing that I hope that we'll take from it would be keeping these connections, staying and they might look a little bit different as we gather more and things loosen up. And I so appreciate too, what you described about nature. You know, I lived in Alexandria and worked in DC for many years. And a highlight for me was what you just described is seeing the cherry blossoms. And, you know, I worked at by the Lincoln 22nd constitution. And so that we would typically choose one lunch to walk over there. You know, it's a little bit of a hike, but you know, when it's a nice sunny day, you can just, you know, you make sure you bring the right shoes. So um, one of my friends did it in heels (laughs) once and I would not recommend that. But I mean, by the time we got over there, she needed band-aids because she had blisters. I I bet. (laughs) um, You know, that's such a beautiful thing. And I think you're right, whether it's just us getting out or, you know, I'm in Iowa now and our snow has finally melted almost all of it but you know to be able to do a walk and just see things blooming I think it gives us hope yes renewal (laughs) yeah yeah well you know during these turbulent times another thing you know besides nature that we look to is to the past or history because that often provides us insights for hope in the present and the future and you know is there a historical figure that's influenced your career in the public health sector and it could be someone still alive or, um, you know, someone who's already passed that's made a difference in your life? Or, and it can be more than one for sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, because I have a few. I was um, thinking about this because, you know, it's Women's um, History Month and we're just coming off of African-American Black History Month and um, a few people, a few historical figures in public, in the public health sector, particularly um, that have made a, a, a difference for me. One is Billy Avery. She's the founder of the Black Women's Health Imperative and the Avery Institute for Social Change. 
She was a part of the women's health movement of the 70s. And during that time, there was a chasm, you know, within the women's health movement and just the women's movement also around the place of women of color in the women's rights movement, right? Yeah. The African-American woman pioneer in the public health, in the Black women's health movement. And um, just someone that I really admire and respect. Um, she was a trailblazer for sure for me as a, as a women's health advocate and someone that cares about improving the, the well-being and quality of life of Black women in our country. Coincidentally, she um, co-founded the Gainesville Women's Health Center in Florida, which is the same town that I went to um, undergraduate school in, in North Central Florida. So she also has Florida roots, which is awesome. Yeah. And then in the early 80s, like actually, the, I think I was one years old when she did this. So she founded the National Black Women's Health Project, which is now called the Black Women's Health Imperative. And that's a national organization committed solely to improving the physical, mental, and emotional well-being of Black women and their families. So she's definitely a standout for me. And I got, had, a, had the privilege of meeting her when I was in graduate school at the University of South Florida, and we were starting um, faculty members and students and community members, leaders were starting an all-women's health coalition in the state of Florida. This was in the early um, early mid-2000s, and she was a part of the leadership team to kind of teach us and, you know, how to start a a major coalition, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, so she's just one of those people. Another person is Dr. Kamara Phyllis-Jones, the former president of the American Public Health Association. Um, I'm a a long-term member of the American Public Health Association since 2003, 2004. And Dr. Kamara Jones is the, as the immediate past president of the APHA, the American Public Health Association, she brought the impact of racism on health and well-being to the forefront of the public health agenda. And she um, initiated a national campaign against racism with three main goals, naming racism as a driver of social determinants of health, um, identifying the different ways racism drives current and past policies and practices in our country, and um, also facilitating conversation, research, and interventions to address racism and um, to improve population health. So. Um, she is definitely someone who I learned how to move from talking about race to racism. I think in a lot of medical and um, health and public health schools, like historically, you know, race is the factor that leads to disparities, but it's really not race itself. That's a social construct. It's racism. <laughs> and she really has been at the forefront of um, the public health agenda and making racism a public health issue. And then I would say the third person is the late Dr. Bill Jenkins. He's a CDC epidemiologist. When I was an undergrad at the University of Florida, I did a summer program for aspiring minority undergraduate students with interest in public health careers. Emory School of Public Health and CDC, it was um, through the Minority Health Professions Foundation. And he was one of the faculty members that did trainings for for our students who were in the program, that summer program. And I learned that he was one of the um, scientists, the African-American epidemiologists that tried to end the Tuskegee syphilis study. And hearing how he went about doing that from a scientific perspective. And, and then he also taught me that it's not just about um, access to healthcare, but it's about making healthcare ac- acceptable to people, right? Like 
it's one thing to have access, but if people won't show up for healthcare, if it's not acceptable and you're not affirmed for who you are and it's not dignified healthcare, yeah. right? And just that, that always stuck with me. This was like back in 2002, 2003, you know, I learned that and I was like, that's what it, that's what, that's so, I hadn't heard that concept yet. Like, you know, we talk about high quality healthcare and access to care and improving, you know, reducing this, you know, reducing barriers to care and gaps in care. But like, who's talking about once you have access, what, what motivates you to want to show up and use, use it? Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, act, you know, making sure that's what quality is about quality healthcare It's making healthcare acceptable to people. And that really stuck with me because that's central, I think, to um, eliminating racial and ethnic health disparities and other health and healthcare inequities. Well, it's so interesting when I reflect on and listen to you about, you know, those three people and a how bold they were, you know, in addressing these really important issues. And then also feeling a little sad too, that some of the things that they brought up quite some time ago, we're still talking about today and dealing with today, but, you know, I think we need to just continue to stay with it. But the, the point that you raised at the end about access and acceptability, I found really interesting to see like places, um, like barbershops where, you know, healthcare has been brought in with men with uh, high blood pressure or even mental health now is being talked about. Like, you know, maybe we could talk about some of these issues and normalize it a little bit. And, you know, the care for patients with diabetes, you know, has also like, let's think through, is it at a church gathering? You know, what, and so those examples that you gave are just so important because if we don't meet people where they are and get them to uh, have them kind of understand, you know, they might not seek the care or they might not be compliant at all, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Well, I really, you know, appreciate that. You know, we connected last year at first in the middle of the year, and that was such a difficult time. And there continues to be tough things throughout the year with racial injustice and civil unrest. And then, you know, we continue to hear about health disparities with COVID-19 and also access to the vaccine. You know, like we're need, right now we're talking about getting it out in the communities, but making sure that communities have access to it or know where to get it. And so, I mean, I've been encouraged a little bit when I've seen more of these clinics that are in a setting that would make sense where people would normally go. I'm so pleased with, you know, the independent pharmacies that have been part of the distribution with my alma mater, Drake, just had one at the Boys and Girls Club that's connected to Drake University. I mean, that is like, I thought was really cool. So tell me a little bit about your work as a health equity strategist and social justice advocate. We've touched on it in our discussion this afternoon. Yeah, that's a great question. Historically, my work has centered around women's health, equity issues, gender and, and health issues, youth rights, so access to um, comprehensive sexuality education, for instance, and the health of racial and ethnic minorities, right, and the health of people living with HIV and other stigmatized health conditions. So those have been the areas that I've um, focused heavily on throughout my career. All the work I've done, I've worked in nonprofit sector, in um, public service, in academia and think action tanks. And the, the common thread really for all my work has been about advancing health equity and doing that from different vantage points, whether it's um, supporting um, local community-based organizations, 
youth serving organizations um, like school-based health centers to include youth in the design of their own health education and their own health services, right? Meaningful involvement of young people and youth develop, you know, youth development, youth leadership development um, as a, you know, as a strategy for um, improving youth outcomes, you know, improving youth health behaviors, right? Delaying the, the start of sex, right? And when they do start at an appropriate age that they have the, the information that they need to have quality conversations with their partners, right? For consent, focusing on um, youth adult um, partnerships, helping um, to build young people into decision-making processes, giving them seats on boards of, of, of community organizations to help inform the, the programs that help them build their life skills, right? Um, so they're set on a good path for life, to go to, go to college, to, to enter a trade, to, to have um, access to opportunities. Those all increase youth outcomes, youth health outcomes, youth well-being outcomes. So um, that's really where I started my, um, a lot of my health equity work was around youth rights and then also focusing on HIV prevention and improving the outcomes of people living with HIV and people affected by HIV. So um, being a part of promoting civic engagement and um, access to decision-making um, bodies for people with the lived experience of the programs that are being decided upon. And I feel that's central to health, you know, to, it's a central strategy to advancing health equity is really supporting and, and preparing people with the lived experiences of whatever, you know, health or human service program that's being designed. Yeah. Centering the voice and the lived experience meaningfully and not just in a um, check the box kind of way, but a meaningful, sustained manner of of engagement. And that involves time and money and resources, right? For foundations and boards to fund community organizations to have the, the space and time to develop meaningful community partnerships and to cultivate those um, authentic opportunities for people who might not normally have access to decision-making opportunities or to inform policies and programs that affect the services and the, uh, you know, and the resources that they have, that they need to, to live, right, in their local community, um, in the county, in the, you know, the city, state, um, and then nationally also. So for me, that's really a lot of my, my health equity work has been centered on that strategy is civic engagement, leadership development of people who are the intended recipient of a lot of health and human services programs. Well, thank you for explaining that. And I also was reflecting as I was listening to you about the importance of targeting youth and the difference that can make. And it really can be a life or death difference, right? Like the path that people could be on or just um, the difficulties that they may face, but looking at it in a more holistic view in the community and all of those pieces. Th thank you. That was a really interesting explanation. Well, you and I connected last year. You were a speaker for a webinar. I'm a member of the American Society of Health System Pharmacists. I've been a member since I was a student. And, you know, I was super jazzed when they took a leadership role related to well-being and aligned with the National Academy of Medicine. And so, you know, when I saw this webinar come up and you just had so many interesting things that you shared and they shared an update on the uh, collaborative on clinician well-being and resilience. So 
Can you tell me a little bit more about what that is and why that makes such a difference and why it's so important to talk about well-being, resilience, burnout for clinicians during COVID-19 especially? Absolutely, Melissa. Um, clinician and public health workforce well-being and resilience is near and dear to my heart. Um, as someone who's experienced burnout twice in my in my career already, and I'm still somewhat of a um, not wouldn't say like an entry level, far from that, but you know definitely still on the younger end within the within the field, the public health field, and burnout is real, especially for high achieving people and people really committed to social justice and health. You know it's really proximal to our lived experience, so you know we're at risk. You know a lot of um, helpers and healers, right? Yeah are at risk of compassion fatigue and professional burnout. So, you know, the well-being of our healthcare and public health workforce is absolutely essential for safe and high-quality patient care, period, right? If um, we're not caring for our carers, we're at risk of running out of people who will care for, for all of us. Right. And so clinicians and public health professionals of all kinds across all specialties and care settings are experiencing alarming rates of burnout. Among the most telling of statistics I learned is that more than 50% of U.S. physicians report significant symptoms. And burnout is characterized as um, high degree of emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, which, come, which is seen as, you know, it comes across as cynicism when you encounter it. Um, and like a low sense of actual, of professional, uh, of personal accomplishment in your work. And so the consequences of clinician and public health professional burnout is really serious, you know, and it's very wide ranging from everything from reduced job performance um, to high turnover rates. And in the most extreme of cases, medical error and actually clinician suicide. And on the other hand, clinician well-being also supports and there's, there's research to support that it, it at least improved patient and clinician relationships and communication, um, higher functioning interprofessional um, team-based care. Um, and then you have people who are more engaged and effective in their workforce too. So in other words, you know, when we invest in the well-being of clinicians and our public health workers, everybody wins, yeah. right? And so um, supporting clinician and public health professional well-being, it also requires sustained attention and action at um, the organizational levels, at state and national levels, and it requires investment and um, research and moving from what we know is effective to actually implementing what we know is effective to reduce um, burnout and to improve well-being amongst clinicians and public health workers. So um, like you said, I used to work with the National Academy of Medicine and um, I directed their action collaborative on clinician well-being and resilience. And the, this collaborative started in, in 2017 and it's um, a network of more than 200 organizations, including professional organizations, like your organization, uh, government agencies, healthcare centers, clinicians, like individual clinicians, um, patients, and consumer group representatives. Everyone who's a part of the collaborative is committed to reversing the negative trends in clinician burnout and improving well-being of, of healthcare professionals and, the, and public health workers. So the um, clinician well-being collaborative has three goals, really, to raise the visibility of clinician anxiety, burnout, depression, stress, and suicide 
improve the, um, our baseline understanding of the challenges to clinician well-being and advancing evidence-based uh, multidisciplinary solutions to um, improve patient care and patient outcomes by caring better for our care caregivers in the first place. Um, and so the Action Collaborative does a lot of its work through six major working groups, which are all tasked to um, identify evidence-based strategies or promising evidence-based strategies that have been shown to improve clinician well-being and reduce burnout at mostly the organization and systems level, not really the one, you know, the individual yeah. um, level to remove the stigma and burden of it being an individual deficiency, but rather looking upstream to look at what environments and what resources are people really given to thrive and to provide an environment that's healthier for public health workers and clinicians, quite frankly, to work in in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so um, the, the working groups create different products and engage in different activities. Um, um, some big ones were the development of an online um, clinician well-being knowledge hub, developing um, case studies of different um, health clinics and centers that have really had leadership champion well-being of their workforce as a as a priority, you know, and having board engagement and actually developing different workflows, clinical workflows and physical and built environment design changes to actually improve both the patient and the clinician's experience in actually the delivery and the receipt of healthcare. The working groups also have developed that, you know, validated instruments to um, assess work-related dimensions of well-being. You know, you've heard the saying, you know, you measure what's what's important to you, right? Yes. If, you, if, if healthcare organizations really care about the, you know, patient outcomes and their providers and um, even administrative staff, administrative staff, non-clinical staff and clinicians alike, um, everyone's um, a part of the ecosystem, right? The yeah. healthcare ecosystem. And so it's really important for boards and um, healthcare executives to assess the work-related dimensions of well-being for their whole entire workforce. So the collaborative, the Action Collaborative on Clinician Well-Being and Resilience, the working groups have um, developed um, validated instruments to help healthcare organizations measure the right things, right? To, to know what's going on, to have their finger on the pulse of the physical and emotional mental health of their, their staff. And then um, the collaboratives also developed a conceptual model that reflects the domain's effect in clinician well-being. Um, and the cool, one of the cool things that the collaboratives done is um, they develop an expressions of clinician well-being art exhibit, a digital and traveling art gallery that um, collects insights directly from clinicians and patients and loved ones and uh, loved ones of both patients and the clinicians too, mind you, and um, organizations all working to prevent burnout and promote clinician well-being. So um, of course, during the pandemic, the traveling art gallery went on hiatus for a bit, of course. So during my time at the collaborative, I, um, at the National Academy of Medicine, I, I, you know, talking about pivots from earlier, we had, we were on track to, to do, you know, to move our, our work forward, you know, advancing clinician well-being as a high priority among healthcare organization CEOs across the country. And then the COVID-19 pandemic hit yep. last March, right? Yeah. And so I had to do the ultimate pivot and I was tasked with um, leading our charge of all the members of the collaborative to develop a strategy for how we're going to respond 
and meet the immediate needs of clinicians in our country on the front lines of the COVID-19 public health emergency when we were already facing a burnout crisis in our country. <laughs> so, so, you know, the, the pandemic really, it brought additional attention to the workplace hardships and the many moral dilemmas that clinicians are already facing, but even more so now. Um, and, you know, the, and that the current crisis exacerbated, quite frankly. So, the Clinician Wellbeing Collaborative remained wholly committed to supporting the well-being of clinicians um, in the public health workforce um, through this pandemic and the syndemic, you know, with the racial justice reckoning as well. And then just the chronic health inequities. I, you know, I really call this time a period of a syndemic, right? Yeah. Like um, the COVID-19 pandemic plus the chronic health inequities that were already existing in our in our country plus the racial injustice that already existed also. So, but coming, you know, but we had the reckoning, right? <laughs> um, you know, living through a pandemic times. I was fortunate to be able to, um, to kind of lead um, our, the strategy for how we were going to respond and, um, and bring together different um, health organizations across different specialties, including student learners, so health profession students, and those that represent them and support them to address their needs during the pandemic. And, and you know, we were able to publish a um, perspective paper in the New England Journal of Medicine on the parallel, uh, the, you know, preventing a parallel pandemic of the, the mental health crisis and the well-being crisis among clinicians um, on the front lines of the pandemic as well as, as five strategies to influence national, the national response by different actors, you know, private and, and public actors to rise to meet and predict the oncoming needs of the, the well-being of clinicians and the public health workforce who are working their butts off trying to keep us safe and, and trying to um, respond. So it definitely the Clinician Wellbeing Collaborative, so glad that it was in existence before the pandemic because we had already, my predecessors to the program that actually started and launched the program had done a tremendous job of laying the groundwork to bring key people, key leaders together to make clinician well-being a national policy priority. Well, I can link to that article you talked about in the New England Journal of Medicine in our uh, in our show description. And I also just want to say thank you because it's such a complex topic and you really broke it down for us this afternoon to describe how multifaceted it is and also reinforced how important it is. I mean, we need to care for our caregivers, especially now. And also that our caregivers, and I, my son says we've gotten more of an understanding of this with what we've gone through, you know, as a nation and globally this past year of it takes a village and how many people are involved in care that we're receiving, you know, and that um, it may be acute care, it may be, you know, through home, it may be through telehealth, all different ways. And I think the other point that you raise that's so important to reinforce is the systems aspects of this that, you know, there can be systems in place that can make things more difficult or harder. And so addressing those and that it's not just an individual, you know, that they need to meditate. I mean, there's certain things that individuals can do that can help in the bigger picture, but there's pieces that go together. And so I look forward to checking out those, you know, five areas that you talked about. Yeah. And, and just to plug one more, well, not one more, but the National Academy of Medicine's Action Collaborative on Clinician Wellbeing and Resilience, the, the, the home on the, the NAM web page, on the website, has a whole host of great resources, really, 
um, beyond even just the New England Journal paper, but NAM has different um, commentaries and discussion papers that um, have really focused on the unique needs of the clinicians um, and the public health workforce during the pandemic. So I definitely, if you could share the, yeah. the link to the, the NAM um, webpage, I actually was a part of creating the and standing up with my team the um, strategies to reduce burnout and well and to improve well-being um, for clinicians during the pandemic. We um, pulled together um, very diverse, again multidisciplinary set of resources across different specialties and practice settings, and what different organizations' commitments are to supporting their provider, their their workforce, or their stu student learners. Um, during this pandemic and beyond. So there's a, it's very diverse and it's um, sectioned off by type of resource. And it's a really, and there's actually some practical strategies also. We actually have practical strategies for clinicians and practical strategies for their healthcare managers on how to, um, in, you know, in the more um, individual and team oriented way, what to do to support yourself, right? And so we link some really reputable science-based um, resources. And I definitely encourage folks to check out the NAM website. Well, I for sure will link that as a resource. Thank you. And, you know, I think the um, serious nature of all of this, you know, just want to underscore that, but also that there is help, you know, and there's options and things that people can do. And that I think even just talking about it, you know, bringing up, and I have found um, throughout the pandemic, just, you know, hearing some of the stories from clinicians or frontline providers, you know, what they've been dealing with, and then ways that either their institution can be supportive or, you know, things that they've done individually that have helped with it. So I definitely will share that. And I also want to reinforce what you started when we first started talking about this topic, though, there's of course, serious dire consequences when this is happening. But then when the reverse is happening, you know, when it's more well-being, the positive things that can happen for healthcare outcomes, you know, and so we want to make sure that we're, we, you know, that we're talking about the balance. Yeah. Well, you know, I have just really enjoyed our time together today. And one of the things on my podcast, my discussions with our various guests, I ask at the, as we draw to a close, you know, while I have you, is there one prescription or life lesson you'd like to share with others or comment on in the spirit of Melissa Rx Scripps? That's a good one, Melissa. Um, <laughs> life lesson. I would say this is, it might be a little cheeky, but um, lately the Finding Nemo, you know, when, when life gets you down, you know, keep on swimming, uh -huh. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's been working for me this week. Honestly, <laughs> I could say something more profound, but I think at the core, at the heart of it, you know, there's always going to be, you know, something to criticize, but why don't we focus on what is good yeah. right now before us, right? Right. I, I really do believe in focusing on the good and not, not to bury your head in the sand, but I do think that there is value in, in taking stock of the, the blessings that, you know, that each of us have and, and focusing on that as a, as the light forward. Well, when life gets you down, keep swimming and focus on the good, I think are such important messages and such a great way for us to close, you know, our discussion together. I just want to say thank you, Candice, you know, for sharing your insights with me. It's really been a treat for us to connect and to talk. And this is the Melissa Rx Scripps podcast. And to everyone listening, thank you so much for joining us. And please subscribe to our show. I wanted to say a special thank you to our producer, Kate Cruz, with Executive Podcast Solutions, who helped make the magic happen. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, Melissa. It's been great.